Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 123. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss Onward. This was meant to be a massive theatrical release for Disney last year. It had a very short theatrical run. But to Disney's credit, they did move it to Disney Plus without making it a premium. I'm going to say this every single time. Without making it (laughs) premium content, which I very much appreciated. And I think most people did, right? Because with it only having roughly a two-week run... There were a lot of people that were getting ready to, you know, take the kids during a spring break when they were off from school. And that's why you see a lot of these movies get released around a holiday. Uh, 4th of July, Labor Day, Memorial Day, Christmas, spring break, because they know that kids are off from school, so it's going to drive the box office numbers. So people didn't have the chance to do that this time. I love that they went right to Disney Plus with it. We barely got it in. I mean, we were fortunate enough to see it opening weekend and it wasn't like we were, you know, beating down the doors like we need to see Onward. We just happened to go because coincidentally we were going to visit family in Florida the next week as they announced the shutdown. Yeah. Uh, So we squeezed it in. That was opening weekend. I think it was like the March 5th or 7th or something like that. Yeah, it was very early on in the month of March. So it did only get that one week theatrical run. And... I think at the time that was just March 6th straight on. You were right on it. Yeah. No, I remembered. We I know we got it opening weekend. Yeah. And and actually so that yeah, and and I mean it recouped almost all of its production budget in that short window, which is a win for Disney considering the year that they had. That's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, looking back on it, nobody knew really what was to come. I mean, yes, we knew that we were shutting down, but nobody, I don't think, really expected it to be that, that long. Um, So I think this was really Disney's first sort of pivot. And, you know, it, it was kind of a morale boost to just be like, all right, you're stuck inside. Here's this movie. Now you can watch it. Yeah, it was a, and I thought it was such a positive pivot in a time where people really did need positivity. Yes. All right, I'm just going to get right into it. So in Onward, a world previously filled with wonder and magic is now mundane. We meet Ian on his 16th birthday as well as his brother Barley and their mom. While the rest of the world continues to modernize, Barley is intent on protecting their mythical history, much to the dismay of their mom's boyfriend, Officer Bronco, because Barley is always causing some sort of problem, uh, as they are uh, quick to remind you of over and over again. We also learn that their father died young, and Ian has no memory of him, whereas Barley has at least a couple of you know, brief memories of him. After school, their mom gives Ian a gift from their father, left for them to open when they were both grown. He opens it to find that his father left a wizard's staff 
along with a note that contained a visitation spell and a phoenix gem. The visitation spell gave them the opportunity to see their father for 24 hours. After Barley fails to make the spell work, Ian tries, and it begins to bring their dad back. However, the gem is destroyed, leaving their father's legs intact and nothing else. With only 24 hours to spare, Ian and Barley set off on a quest to find a replacement Phoenix Gem and go to the Manticore's Tavern to start. Their mom comes home to see that they're gone and sets off to find them. They arrive at the tavern to see that it has been turned into a party space much like a Chuck E. Cheese. They ask for the map to the Phoenix Gem, but the Manticore isn't interested in helping them. When called out for abandoning her beliefs, the Manticore goes off, and the tavern is destroyed along with the map. Ian starts to slowly harness his powers, and they realize that they must head to Raven's Point next, but the two argue on whether to take the expressway or the path of peril. They eventually agree on the expressway, at least temporarily. Their mother arrives at the tavern, and the Manticore joins her in the search for the boys in order to save them from the Guardian Curse which has been put into place to protect the Phoenix Gem. And if you take the gem, the curse is unleashed. After some reckless driving, they use a disguise spell to appear to be Officer Bronco to the officers that have pulled them over, and Ian's true feelings about Barley are exposed. Their mother and the Manticore track down the Curse Crusher Sword, which they need to destroy the Guardian Curse, which has been sold to a pawn shop, and they continue their quest to save the boys. Bronco, meanwhile, is pursuing them as well. After traveling the path of peril and encountering more magic, the boys almost arrive at Raven's Point, but Bronco tries to stop them. A chase ensues, and backup arrives, so Barley sacrifices his beloved Van Guinevere, to block the police pursuit so the boys can continue their quest. Upon arriving at Raven's Point, we learn that Barley, as a child, was afraid to go into his hospital, uh, into his father's hospital room and vowed to never be scared again, which is why he basically does not care what people think of him, and he very much lives with his heart on his sleeve. After outrunning a gelatinous cube, Barley and Ian exit towards what they believe will be the Phoenix Gem, but instead it leads to a manhole cover in their town across the street from Ian's high school. Ian blames Barley for leading them in the wrong direction and storms off. After some time to cool down, he realizes that Barley was a father figure to him and returns to make amends. Meanwhile, Barley retrieves a Phoenix Gem from a fountain in the town that he had previously protected from destruction and unleashes the Guardian Curse, sending a stone dragon on a rampage. Their mother and the Manticore battle the dragon to buy the boys some time. The gem begins to work in restoring the rest of their dad, but the dragon returns. Ian leaves to fight off the dragon so Barley can finally say goodbye to their father. The boys reconcile, Ian becomes more confident in himself, and the boys help restore magic to the town. There is an awful lot that actually happens in this hour and 40 minutes. This is very much an action-packed 
at times, I'm not going to say convoluted. I'm going to say fully loaded hour and 40 minute film. And it was completely unexpected because I remember when they announced this and it was coming off of Avengers and everybody was like, OMG, Chris Pratt, Tom Holland playing brothers. This is perfect. And I think what everyone was sort of expecting was more of a magic troublemaker dynamic duo. So what we got was a complete surprise. Here's the thing, and I've I've referenced this movie so many times on this show that I'm sure people are going to get tired of hearing me say it, but I think that it truly is the standard for what you think one of those really insane mythical movies that has a lot of adult humor peppered in because we've seen that Pixar is not afraid to do that and neither is Disney. I thought this was going to be like Shrek. And I'm so, like, I know yeah. people are like, oh my God, Sean with Shrek. But Shrek did a good job of becoming that standard. You get a lot of the sort of adult humor peppered into the buddy film in Toy Story. I think even in Tangled, you get a little bit of that adult humor in there as well. So it's it's over the head of a kid, but an adult can still enjoy it. I firmly believed that that's what we were going to get here, especially when you got that initial teaser trailer. I mean, you sort of do in the sense that it's the type of film that is poking fun at a genre, but is still like bound by the rules of that genre, um, which is sort of why... I, I want to talk through the beginning because I both love and hate this intro. I think the voiceover works. I like that it's introducing us to the idea of the time that was. But at the same time, it goes so quickly to set up the rest of the film, which I do understand because we didn't need to spend a lot of time here. But I wanted to. I missed that Pixar world building. I missed the setup. I missed the hierarchy. I was hoping for more of like an inside out sort of structure or Toy Story. Even, you know, when immediately we meet Woody, we find out everybody's role within Andy's room. And I was hoping for that here because I thought this was such a cool premise. I love how dull the world has become because it's very relatable. And like, here's the thing. Disney and Pixar are not afraid to make things relatable and give you a, cla a splash of cold water and sometimes a look in the mirror. Look no further than Wally, which was not a film that was appreciated by most people when it came out. <laughs> now, all these years later, I don't know, it's kind of accurate to me. Um, so I, I disagree with you in that. I love that this is this is what they created. I don't think you needed to spend a ton of time in this world. However, the best world building in the movie is in this little intro. That's where I very much agree with you because as the movie plays out, I mean, New Mushroom Town, yeah, it's fine. It clearly is supposed to be playing off of those California suburbs with the cookie-cutter neighborhoods. For sure. But the fact is... I thought this was going to be a Zootopia, a Wreck-It Ralph, exactly. a Ralph Breaks exactly. the Internet, where oh, Inside Out, a perfect example, where the world building is just so incredible. 
And I think that in that category, as a whole, it does fall short. Right. And I do agree with you. I like the way that they phased magic out like it was a dated technology. I think that was very smart. But I think if you had built up the world just a teeny bit more, we would have felt the impact of not having magic more. Because then when you get to New Mushroom Town, you're in the house you see that there's not a trace of magic anywhere, but they still have a pet dragon. Obviously, they look very different. They look like they they belong in this world. So you kind of you kind of aren't even missing the magic because it's still a fantastical world to us. I just needed something more to make me feel feel bad for them as to why they lost it. Right, and you don't get that at all. But I think where the movie does succeed otherwise in the beginning is I I feel like in very little time, the characters get yep. fleshed out very well. Mm-hmm. You know exactly who Ian is, especially when he puts his father's sweatshirt on. You get the... Uh, you, I mean, you get the feeling for how their mom is. She's doing the P90X sort I'm of thing. I'm a mighty warrior. And she's got the mom jeans going, and she's got the you know the really tight haircut, and she's treating her kids like they're perpetually five years old. And then you just get Barley, who's straight out of a Rush concert. I mean, <laughs> he it's great. And then you get Bronco. Like, a lot happens where I feel like they paced that, and they built the characters quickly but they did it very well in the beginning. They really do. Um, At first I sort of rolled my eyes that the cop also happens to be dating their mom now, but they do end up paying that off later on. We will talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a good little plant in the beginning. What I really love is that Barley is obsessed with the quest of your game. And that's the equivalent of our Dungeons and Dragons, obviously, But what I love here is that it is now rooted in history. It's not myth. So that's where we get a little bit of the inside out Wreck-It Ralph type of world building because he is giving us those rules and he knows how to play this game. And it's almost it reminds me a lot of Stranger Things Mm -hmm. because that is D&D. But because they knew the game, they knew exactly what to do. I love this storyline. I love the fact that they made it relatable with a Dungeons and Dragons sort of yes. thing. I think it works for Barley as a character. Um, I I look at Barley and I think, yes, you would absolutely be playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I and- also like the fact that it is rooted in history and that he knew the game so well that it didn't matter that the map got burned up. Now... Who's to say that he couldn't have just sort of done that the whole time? But you needed to get the manticore in the movie somehow, so I will sort of overlook that. Right. He knew where to start. But I love the irony of this game. That's that's what's really smart about it, is that instead of this fictitious game that did sort of get written off as nerd culture, mm-hmm. it is their map. I also think that it sets up one of the funniest lines in the movie where you have Barley having left his 
figurines in the hallway and the mother steps on. Now, Barley is like clearly <laughs> meant to be like in his 20s and his mom steps on one and she says, get your soldiers off my land or our kingdoms will go to war. I love it. I think that's the funniest line in this movie. It's such a great character moment for Laurel, too, because it shows that she will play along with her sons and she'll humor them. But you're right. It still does drive home that she's treating them like they're still five years old. And I I get it. It is a protection thing. They've lost their father. But um, that is one of my favorite moments in the movie. Um, I love that we also get I I think they did a really good job uh, with the exposition of finding out what happened to the father, especially because, you know, we meet Barley. He's a total goofball. He is circumventing literally everything Ian is trying to do on his birthday. But we get the three memories of the father peppered in and planted in the very beginning. And I think the brilliance of the dad character, similar to how they pepper in those three memories, is that he's just legs, right? But over the course of the movie, they continue to develop him. Whether it's the interaction that Ian has with one of his father's former classmates at the Burgershire, or the note that he leaves the kids, and then they have that really kind of heartwarming scene where their dad is goofily dancing with them, and it's hysterical because it's just legs. You take a character that is never really going to speak other than the cassette tape, and we are going to talk about the cassette tape shortly, and you string him out over the course of the movie, but I feel like with everything that you do, we learn more about the characters, and it's, it's to me, it's the exact same thing they do with these memories. It never feels like it's overdone. Right, and that's the brilliance of planting it so early on because obviously you get the impression that Barley misses his father, but it also sets up that he lost him very young. And as you said, it keeps building and it keeps building. But the only thing is that it doesn't really pay off in the end because now we've invested so much time into the dad character and we can't wait to meet him, but we never get to. I'm going to reserve my feelings about that at the end of the movie. Yeah, because the end is a whole other thing. But just based on what you said, we just don't get that payoff. Absolutely. I love the scene where Ian... and, and, And it starts to become too much when he's going to invite his classmates to come to the house for his birthday party. And, like, he's got to write notes on his hands about how he's going to script it. It's... It's too awkward, but I think it works. It it towed the line. I felt like it was almost too much. I think that if Barley had not arrived in that van, I think it would have become too much with the awkwardness. I like that he, because it is good character development, I like that he's writing everything out in his to-do list of things that he wants to change about himself. And then we see him fail miserably at this, but you're right. And that is the whole premise of the movie. A lot of that is barley, right? It's just as much Ian and what he thinks of himself, which he does blame barley for, but he really shouldn't because it's about mending their relationship. Right. But when barley pulls up in this van, this scene is perfection. Because for those of you who have not seen the movie Fanboys, I would implore that you see the movie Fanboys. Um, Barley 
is straight out of that movie. From the rock music to the van to the outfit, it's absolutely perfect. And at the same time, he also reminds me of like a buzz from Home Alone Although he's not he's not as much of a buzz kill. Right. Uh and the older brother in Wonder Years. Yes. Yeah. Although I think that the difference between those two characters and him His intentions are way better. Much better. Absolutely. I don't know if you catch it too. It's just such a subtle thing with Barley. And we will get into his character more. He also has a cast. And you see it's written on with all of his, you know, his bands and stuff like that. But, like, it's just one of those very subtle details that that boosts the character so much. Because it's like, of course, he doesn't look before he leaves. So, of course, he would break his arm. And because he sort of has this reputation in the town, he doesn't have people signing his cast. He's writing the bands on the cast because he doesn't have anybody to sign it for him. That's a nice catch. I didn't even think so, about that. So, yeah, I think... And that's that's just the brilliance of Pixar in general, right? Now, let's move on to when they get back to the house. I mentioned the tape scene. This is... And, and for those of you who are not familiar... A cassette. <laughs> it's a cassette that Ian has that he plays that is his father's voice because they were like Mike checking a recorder. And he has listened to it so many times that he basically has a script for a conversation he can have with his father every single day. And the conversation doesn't ever really change, but he gets to speak with him every day. This, to me, is on par with any of the heartbreaking moments from Up. I think it is that powerful. Oh, forget on par. This is a new low, Pixar. It's 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 low, but it's so high. It's below the belt. But it's so good. And and it's rooted in fact. You know, the whole motivation for this film, the whole reason why this film plays out as it does is because the writer director Dan Scanlon, he and his brother lost their father very young. His brother was three. He was one. Um, So it's the exact same scenario as you have with Ian and Barley. And they did have a cassette tape of their father, but all he said was hello and goodbye. So, I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, where does somebody come up with this? It's almost even more heartbreaking knowing that that it's rooted in fact. Right, because everybody's you know, experienced a loss where you can go back and you can watch old home video and it's painful. It's very hard to do, but this is just, it's almost worse in some ways because you don't have the video to go with it. So, you know, in that moment with the video, it sort of brings the person back to life for a moment. This, like you really feel the absence and you feel the loss and it's, I don't want to say pathetic because it's how Ian is dealing with his loss, but it is such a low moment to the char- for the character. Like you really feel badly for him that this is how he's dealing with it. Yeah, but I I think this is necessary other than the fact that this is real life to 
the Scanlan brothers. The other thing is that you've seen the nerdy kid before. You've seen the nerdy kid with no friends before and no real father figure. Especially because it's Tom Holland that's voicing him. What makes Ian different than Peter Parker other than getting bit by a radioactive spider? Right. You know, like we've seen this character played out so many times. And if it's not Tom Holland, it's Jay Baruchel. We just talked about it with Sorcerer's Apprentice. So you needed something to push it over the top. And I feel that this does it, and that's what separates it from a lot of these other characters. And you also have to sort of set up that although Ian has no memory, it's still just as painful for him having to grow up, never having known his father. Like, you feel bad for Barley because he was robbed of that whole relationship so young, but it still does affect Ian, too. And Ian's not going to just shrug it off as, oh, well, I never knew him. Right. I think it also makes sense that it's Ian that has these powers because Ian is obviously very jaded. Ian is the one that just kind of rolls his eyes with Barley's antics because now we get this wizard's staff with this spell and Barley is the one that is saying everything the right way, but he doesn't have the power and it implores... Barley to step out of his comfort zone. I think that was also very important for this film. I think that in some ways, Barley trying to cast the spell, even though it's supposed to be funny that he's this expert that can't actually perform it, it's just as sad as Ian with the cassette in some ways because he is trying so desperately to make it work. And he truly believes that he can bring his father back and to see him get crushed every single time is really sad. And it also fails to vindicate him. Yes. Right? So he's got this reputation as being the town loony that's trying to keep magic alive. The town history buff. And yet, yeah, the history buff as they call him, yet he can't make this staff work. Right. So you're right. I hadn't even thought about it in that way because it is such a montage that goes on and on and on, and they do hide the sad underneath the funny. And what's amazing, too, is after trying so hard and not being able to get it, instead of being jealous for Ian, he's so excited for him, and he starts cheering, my brother's magic, my brother's magic. I think that the jealousy route would have been an easy way to go. I think it would have been easy for the screenwriting. I think it's what's expected. Um, so I like that they go they go about it differently here. There's no sibling rivalry, and he's just happy. That's one of them's magic, at least. Yes, and he's trying to make sure that Ian is using his heart's fire. That I love that entire scene in the van, even though he just says it over and over again, there's just something about the way he says, your heart's fire. And it, it's just so brilliant. It's so pratty. It's so pretty. I can't wait to talk about Chris Pratt. Um, and, and so, yeah, now they go and they set off on this quest in Guinevere. Of course, the van is named Guinevere. How perfect is that? Um, and this is where the movie kind of I don't want to say it lets me down because in the trailers they don't ever really show you much other than them just starting their quest there's a little bit of 
scenes that get cut into the later trailers. But in the original teaser, when he's like, it's a quest. It's not a quest. It's totally a quest. And then you get the onward title card. I'm like, I can't wait for this epic adventure to start. Right. And that's like I was saying at the beginning of the episode, you totally think it's going to be a buddy movie. We didn't even talk about how when they do manage to bring the father back and now he's just pants like that was that was a pretty brilliant twist. I, w- I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah, I know. And then what they do with it and and how it is a device to move the story forward. I mean, that I think is very funny that they kind of have to weekend at Bernie's him through the entire film. Oh, yeah, that was perfect. And you needed to give them a motivation to go on this quest. Of course. Other than Barley, just, you know, quest, let's do it. But I feel like that's it. Right. Like, we'll talk about what happens over the course of the movie. We'll talk about specific scenes. But in terms of a quest, this is where I thought we were going to really get into the mythical stuff. And I thought that the world building and I thought that the folklore was really going to start playing a big hand in it. So you almost get this this uh, Barley character that's a mix between uh, something out of the 1980s with Shakespeare in the park. And you have Ian who is just jaded and rolls his eyes at everything, and you're somehow going to put them in situation after situation after scenario after scenario where Barley continues to be vindicated in this mythical world, and Ian's the one that has to adjust and pivot. But I kind of feel like that never really happens. I mean, yeah, it's an adventure, and there's some peril, but I And yes, Ian does have to grow, but I just don't think they hit on all of the parts that I thought they were going to hit on based on the trailers. Because it almost at some points comes off as sitcom-y with the things that are standing in their way, as opposed to I sort of thought as the audience, we were going to be like in the chair with them trying to figure it out. I mean, it's definitely a scavenger hunt, but... I thought there was going to be like more more riddles, right? Like you would sort of expect that from this world. I almost thought we were going to, not that it was going to be like a choose your own adventure, but I almost thought just based on the trailer that this was almost going to be more like a video game where we were sort of playing along and unlocking things in the moment with them. Right, and there would be more creatures and more beings that they had to defeat or outwit or move on from. And other than the sprites and the gelatinous cube, you really just outrun Bronco. You know what I'm saying? That, to me, is a tremendous letdown. Right, and in either way, you're either outrunning the cop or outrunning your almost stepdad. Right. Which is kind of weak sauce. I do want to talk about one mythical creature who I do love and I think was used very well. And that is the manticore. Yes. Um, I will never forget this. Sean, when we saw this in the movie theater, went to refill his popcorn during this scene. And to me, it was the scene where you got the biggest belly laughs. And I was, he came back to the seat and I was like, oh, you missed out. And you can't even do it a justice of trying to explain the manticore's fall from grace 
into a children's themed restaurant. And in reality, I think I was only out of my seat for about two to two and a half minutes. But that's how quick this scene is. It is very quick, but you miss the best two to two and a half minutes. I mean, Pixar absolutely nails everything. And I mean, they should because this is sort of a spoof on Disney. But coming from somebody who used to work at Chuck E. Cheese, this scene... I, I was rolling. And I mean, part of me died inside too, but <laughs> I was absolutely hysterical. Yeah. I wish I would have seen it in the theaters. Seeing as I was able to watch the movie less than a month later, I didn't feel like I missed out on that much. A week. A week later. <laughs> yeah, rough. Yeah, basically. But it was, yes, it is probably... In terms of an entire scene, it is probably the funniest scene in the movie. Especially because you're not expecting it at all. Like, you think, because this is the first part of the quest, you are going to be taken to that tavern. Most of these types of video games start at the tavern, or that's your home base. It's got a certain look to it. And as they're approaching, it's dark. You think that's exactly what you're going to get. And when they burst open... And, and they're singing happy birthday. It, it's just such a brilliant twist. And I like that the manticore is still working there. And now she's got to like protect her investors and make sure everything's running smoothly instead of, oh, you know, I sold my franchise and then they got to go track her down. So I think that that was smart to keep her there and have to change her mind and then even later, I, I love the relationship that she develops with Laurel. Yeah, that was really great. Talking about scenes that are very funny, Shrunken Pratt is funny, but I think it would have hit even funnier if we didn't see it in the trailer. Definitely. Like, I think seeing it in the trailer, it was... Because it... Because it doesn't last the entire movie, and because it is very temporary, it's not this like huge obstacle that gets in Ian's way that continues to play on as the movie goes on. It's a funny scene, and you know sometimes you watch a movie and you go, "Oh, all the funny parts were given away in the trailer." I feel like had it not been for the Manticore scene this is a movie where all the funny stuff was given away in the trailer. And that says a lot considering they don't show you a lot in any of the trailers. That was, I, I remember you saying that. That was your initial feedback from the first viewing. I agree. I think that if they had used Shrunken Barley as a device throughout the film, it would have felt very contrived. Um, and at first, I did really think it was gimmicky, but they pay off on it so much with Ian's crash course in driving it's not just that Barley has to outrun these pixies now but because he can't drive and that's a huge point of contention with Ian um that scene that scene is so good yeah and I and I think it's very funny how they get the dad involved right between the arm out the window yes. shaking his arm at them um between him kind of slouching over and giving him, quote-unquote, the look in the convenience store. I think that within itself was funnier than anything that happens with Little Pratt. 
And it's important, too, because it does develop the relationship a little bit more between Ian and Barley because Ian not only has to learn to believe in himself, but he's also he has to start to trust Barley a little bit more. And in this case, he had to put all of his trust in him. Um, What I like, too, is that now we've kind of seen Ian stumbling with this magic. Um, But the next scene where he has to use it we see him really get the hang of it, but he's still foiled. I'm talking about the scene where they impersonate Bronco. That was my next note. That was my next note. I'm glad you're bringing this up. Yeah. Uh, I thought at first, same thing. I was like, oh, this is kind of gimmicky. They're going to impersonate him. And at first I also thought it was really weak too, because they usually when you see something like this, you have to have something from that person. Like in Harry Potter, you have to have a piece of hair or, or just one of their possessions to do that sort of transformation. But by the middle of the scene where Ian's lies are transforming them back, I didn't even care that they didn't go through such great lengths to set it up because what it does, or I should say what it undoes, is now all of the trust that he's just built with Barley completely out the window it's so good this is a great scene i thought that this angle was very smart they could have just as easily dragged this out where everything's great until they get to that manhole cover and then it's i trusted you during down the path of peril and i love that they peppered this in instead yes you do get the argument towards the end of the movie but they put this in here because it adds a layer of drama at first, it's a layer of funny that becomes a layer of sad because you feel for Barley. You are crushed as Barley is crushed. And I think it does sort of shine a light on Ian that, you know what? You really aren't this innocent little nice guy after all. Yes, I love that Ian gets exposed in more ways than one here. Uh, and the animation is just so good. I love that we not only... Like, it would have been easy to just show them as Bronco, but I love the reverse shot where you see the mask that they're wearing as Bronco, and you see them, you know, in the... That, that's a, another great comedic element, too, is that it's it's like the, you know, the two men in the horse suit, and yes. one of them's got to be the back end. Yeah. It's so good. I love that in the van, there is a sign that says, you shall not pass. I love that nod to... Uh, Princess Bride. I thought we would have seen more of those things peppered in, and perhaps we didn't. I think where I was disappointed with the lack of, you know, tributes like that, or puns, or whatever you want to call it, satire, would be the winking and nod. The the patches on Barley's outfits. I was looking for. Where's the kiss patch? Where's the ACDC patch? Where's the rush patch? Where's the poison patch? Where's the Motley Crue patch? Where's the Thin Lizzy patch? The Led Zeppelin? Like, you know, taking things that are iconic, especially the text, when you think about Led Zeppelin and Kiss, or even Aerosmith. You know, those classic rock bands that you've seen on those denim vests for 100 years, poison, same thing. And taking that font and somehow turning it into something relevant to that mythical world. Um, Like, instead of poison, if it were potion. You know what I'm saying? And you don't get that 
and I was I thought that was a missed opportunity. Right, because you're never going to get the rights to any of these logos, but usually they'll do the wink and the nod. We'll all know what it's supposed to be. But you are expecting something like when you go on, it's tough to be a bug, which I know everybody hates, but I love it because of the cue. That's the most clever thing to me is where they took all of those Broadway posters and you know exactly what it's supposed to be, but they changed the words and made it relevant to a bug's life. And that's exactly what you were thinking should have should have happened here. Correct. The rock music as well plays such a crucial role in the movie because he keeps the barley keeps putting these cassette tapes in he's got like mixtapes for basically everything that they're doing and it leads to what i can only refer to as the dancing scene where the father is dancing and the boys make amends with each other this scene and it wasn't until yesterday when we were watching it actually makes me really sad because This whole time, you're feeling that the clock is ticking. They only have 24 hours to get the gem and finish the spell and bring their dad back. But when I saw the dad dancing, I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, he only gets one day here, and you guys are bickering, and he doesn't even get to experience this joy of just being alive one more time. I mean, of course, he did it for his family. That's the whole reason. But... It just kind of made me feel for him a little bit in that moment that he doesn't get to enjoy what will be his last day on Earth. Yeah. I also think that it's necessary, but I guess by virtue of keeping them in that van and not having somebody storm off, they make amends very quickly. Like, what Ian is exposed for, I feel it's like... Bad. It, it It's not pretty bad. It's horrendous. I feel like that should have gotten dragged out a little bit more, and I feel like they sort of rushed into this forgiveness for the sake of saving time. Right, because you could have maybe had that payoff where they forgive each other in the next sequence with the bridge. I mean, here's the thing. You don't have enough time to let that anger play out through the rest of the course of the movie and and have them have it as a happy ending just because... They know they need to work together to bring their dad back. Ian knows he can't do it alone because he doesn't have Barley's knowledge of magic. And Barley, I think, starts to doubt himself. Yes, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, I I think the anger should have lasted a little bit longer because you're right. That's that's a pretty horrendous thing to find out. So you mentioned the bridge scene and moving on here. I think that it is an important scene for Ian specifically because he has to use, which I think they just called it the the invisible bridge spell, I think is what they called it. Um, He's got to create a bridge that he can walk on if he believes he's truly walking on a bridge because the draw bridge that they actually need to cross on Guinevere is a raised bridge. The lever to lower it is on the other side. And the rope that they have tethered to Ian falls off, and he doesn't realize it. It's important because he needed to believe in himself to cross that huge gaping hole. So I think it works for the character. I like that they address that he can't just use the spell from the other side of the bottomless pit because that would be easy right and yeah it does have to be that big moment where he learns to believe in himself but if like you said if if 
Barley's anger lasted as long as it should have, at least as long as I'd be mad. Although, no, that's not true. I'd probably be mad for longer. But you could have had the forgiveness play out where Barley's really got to convince him that he can do this. And then, you know, Ian's not so mad anymore. Instead, Ian successfully crosses in a sequence that is so well animated that it makes me sweat every single time I watch it. He gets sort of mad at Barley again. I mean, briefly. It's, It's only momentarily. And then he's like, you know what? I didn't need the rope. But I think there would have been a better moment of, you know, if if there was like a little celebration, some hugging, high-fiving, and then it would have paid off on the earlier scene. Now they're getting chased by Bronco and his backup, which sets up the sacrifice of Guinevere. (laughs) Barley sacrifices her. I, w- I bring that up now because I, when we talk about the characters, I want to I want to hone in on that a little bit and what I think the biggest difference is between Barley and Ian and who I like more in this movie. He sets up this system where he puts a rock on the gas pedal, he throws it into gear, and he sends... For onward. For, oh, oh, for, for onward, onward. And sends Guinevere off to crash into the boulders that will block the police from pursuing them. And I love how the tire blows and it... It gallops. It gallops. This scene is brilliant. It's incredible. I would... I dare say this is probably the funniest scene. I mean, I love the Manticore's Tavern. And like I said, that that's where your belly laughs come from. But I think this is probably the best humor in the movie. It's great. And then they continue their quest and they outrun the gelatinous cube and they come up underneath that manhole cover. After riding a cheese doodle through a tunnel. That they expanded because they needed a boat. Okay, this is where it's kind of like not so clever. I know, everything that they did after sacrificing Guinevere prior to finding that phoenix gem sort of falls flat for me i mean they do try to address it because barley says um we're on a quest you have to use what you have and what do they have cheese doodles but i mean you do get a good heart to heart between the two of them because that's when barley does expose that he never got to say goodbye so the scene is certainly worth it in that regard but i feel like the device is is just sort of lazy. It's at that point that I wish that they would have found a relic or a raft that he was like, oh, that's the such and such and such and such. And I knew from it the from game. Quest of Lore. You yeah, know, this Quest is this card. Yes. I always play this card. Yes. Exactly. Th- like that's where the game should have come into, uh, into the story more. And yeah. th- I think that was a miss. And what I'm really surprised at, because they have all of these ancient paintings on the walls and we see who I think is supposed to be Merlin. And when we reviewed Sorcerer's Apprentice, they gave us all of the history and it was very much rooted in Merlin. I was just surprised that they didn't do a little nod to Sorcerer's Apprentice and put Yensid in there as one of the pillars or just one of the drawings or just something as a hat tip to the OG magic. Right. Or even if they did something where they referenced Merlin from Sword in the Stone. Exactly. And for for the history buff that Barley is, you would think you'd get that. 
I do like that the manhole cover literally does lead them to the Phoenix gem, which is hidden in the fountain that he is protecting at the beginning of the movie. Barley, this is. Um, and of course, this is where you get another blow up between them. And I thought it was so heartbreaking that and, and I thought it was wrong. I understand that Ian was upset, but that he literally took his father away from Barley and yeah. said, I'm getting private time with dad for as long as I have him because this is my last chance. It's like, well, it's not just your last chance. It's your last chances. And I feel like as upset as he sh- as he is and as upset as upset as he should have been, rightfully so. I thought that that was very harsh. And it's at that point that I got to be honest with you. I really stopped rooting for or even caring about Ian. I would agree with that. Um, But even before that, when they, when they realize how long all of this is going to take, they, they say that they're not going to have an, enough time to bring the dad back to the mother so that she gets time too. And they're just kind of like, yeah, as long as we get it. And you know, that's, I mean, it's in poor taste either way, but especially when she's going out of her comfort zone and she's embracing her inner warrior to save you two, which that's where, Bronco did come into play nicely, you know, before they all meet up again at the end, because Laurel's trying her best to track down the boys. Every time she takes a step forward, he's calling in and distracting her. Um, But it's a good subplot with her and the Manticore and her coming into her own. Um, She's got such a great line, too, um, where she says to the Manticore at one point, I have one son who's afraid of everything and one that's not afraid of anything. And when you think of that, to get dealt that hand as a parent, that's that's a pretty lethal combination. It is. And then we see it all come to fruition here. But it's just kind of, it's bittersweet to see her fighting alongside of them and her making the sacrifice so that they get their chance. And and she she knows she's not really going to get it. I think another place where this missed, and it's I thought a place where they were going with it, um, and I was actually let down that they didn't pay off on it. When Bronco tracks them down at that bridge, I thought he was going to try to stop them, not because yes. they were breaking the law, because he didn't want the father back. I almost thought he was going to become the villain, yeah. Big miss. I think that this would have added such a layer, because you have man against himself, but you really don't have man against man in this movie because you don't have a ton of obstacles other than making a cheese doodle float and having to walk across the invisible bridge and outrun the sprites. You never really get that conflict. I mean, yes, you get it with the stone dragon once the guardian curse is unleashed, but I felt like we were missing some sort of man against man conflict a separate from Ian and Barley having their disagreements, I felt like you needed something else. And I think that when you when you look at these stories, these medieval tales and these fables and whatever, there's always like a villain. I thought Bronco could have been that villain. And I think that it's a mistake that they didn't 
move forward with that? I would argue that Ian and Barley are the man against man in this movie because Barley does foil Ian almost every step of the way. Um, but you're right. I think it would have been maybe a better ending if if the film played out originally like how we thought it was going to where this is the buddy system and they're on a quest and it and they are working together. Um, it may have been interesting if he had to use the gem to control the the dragon or the right. curse or whatever it was. Um, but I think that would have sort of taken away with with Ian's gesture at the end of it all. Because the thing is, if it was Bronco, let's say, controlling the dragon the whole time, Barley, Ian, the mother, they're all going to fight. Somebody had to to stand there and bring the dad back, and two of them went off to fight. So I think that that would have changed the dynamic if it was Bronco. The amends with Bronco, and I don't want to skip too far because we do need to talk about the scene with the dragon and the father. I, I felt like the amends with Bronco at the end, like I didn't need it. You know, they're, you're working hard? I'm hardly working. And he takes his hat off and he's got the long flowing locks. I feel like that would have been funnier and been a better payoff if the movie had ended slightly differently. Um, I But I think by that point I was just so... I was kind of let down. We're going to talk about the ending in a minute. That I feel like I kind of... And even in like revisiting the movie... I don't care that they made amends. So I can do without it because to me it's like whatever. Oh, I disagree. I do like that little piece that we get at the end that it doesn't just end, you know, when when they kind of zoom out of the field of destruction and, you know, you see Bronco and Laurel walk over to the boys. Um, I like that it kind of ties up in a bow and that we see that Ian is now a confident person. Um, that he's changed. He's come out on the other side of this journey different, but he's not only fixed the relationship with, or improved the relationship with Bronco, he's fixed his relationship with Barley, and they're definitely more as a team. So I like that we got a little taste of where everyone's at at the very end. Let's circle back, though, to what builds up to this. Yes. When Barley gets the Phoenix Gem and the Guardian Curse is unleashed... I thought it was funny that the dragon mascot from the new Mushroom Town High School is the face of the dragon. That's some Pixar brilliance right there. That was hysterical. I love the fact that it was a dragon that was fighting them. I think that that fits in perfectly with the world that they created. Yeah, and I'm glad that it wasn't a gelatinous cube at the end. Like, I'm glad we still got the gelatinous cube, but that can't be your endgame villain. Give me a break. No. I like the fact that the Manticore and the mom show up with the Curse Crusher, but here's the thing with the Curse Crusher. As soon as you stab the thing in the heart, it's defeated until it's not. That's a big problem. I And I, I, I would have been fine if the mom would have sacrificed her opportunity to see her husband so the boys could jointly see their father. Yes. And she's the one that uses the curse crusher because the manticore is knocked out of action. But when she stabs it in the heart, guess what? It only works kind of temporarily. Yeah. I mean, 
you kind of knew that Laurel was going to be the one to save the day. That and was when she says, "I am a mighty, I'm a mighty warrior. warrior." I'm like, "Oh my god, yes! This is br- this is where Pixar is brilliant." And as predictable of, as it was, it was still a payoff because she's also using her jazzercise moves to jump up the tail of the dragon. So that was all great, but I didn't think that we were going to have to like argue the level of penetration of the curse crusher to kill the thing. Yeah. Because all they say is stab it in the heart. She got the heart. Yeah, she got it. Why didn't it work? So now you set up the end of the movie where Ian sacrifices his opportunity to see his father so that he can use his spell to throw the curse crusher into the dragon's heart and defeat him. And when the dragon explodes... Ian is knocked backwards, and the stones come down around him, creating a barrier so he cannot get to his father. And he can only watch through a hole in the, in the rubble and destruction. I wish Ian had met his dad. I wish we would have actually seen the dad. I wish we would have heard the dad. And while I think that it's a nice means of redeeming Ian, who is up to this point, sort of an uh, an unlikable character because of the way he continues to treat Barley time and time again. I don't feel fulfilled by this. And I think a lot of that comes from, well, wait a minute, the mother stabbed the heart. I just can't get past the part where she does the exact thing she was supposed to do and it only kind of worked for a minute. No, and I don't think you're alone in that because... I feel like what most people don't like about this movie is the ending. Um, here's the thing. I can, I can forgive that we need to double tap the heart, I guess, because we also had to give Ian a reason to have his boost of confidence. And we've talked about it that this new version of Disney storytelling is the deconstruction of the fairy tale. And it's more about be your own hero and find your own happiness. So I can definitely get on board with Ian having been the one to stab the heart. And if he did and Laurel did nothing in this whole thing, she wouldn't have had a full character arc. And I'm glad she got her win. They both needed their win. Um, could they have gone about it differently? Yeah. Could Laurel's win maybe have been lying to Bronco so that they got to do what they need to do? Yeah, that's that's just as much. I mean, it, it's not as action-packed, but it's just as heroic that she's giving them their moment. Um, but as far as Ian goes, I go back and forth on this one quite a bit as far as him sacrificing his time with his dad to let Barley have the goodbye. Um, it was a total surprise. I didn't see it coming. So for that much, kudos on the storytelling. Um, but, you know, we sort of started talking about it before is that I can live without hearing the dad's voice, although you do get it. He is the opening voiceover. I thought it was Chris Pratt at first, but uh, or Barley setting up the story. But no, it's the dad's the dad's words because they read the letter and it's the same thing right. about why magic disappeared. So I can totally go without hearing his voice, without seeing him. But 
it wasn't until you pointed it out that they have built him up the entire time. Um, and it probably it would have been nicer to see how Ian is like him. I really like his realization that the relationship that he wanted with his father, he realized he really had in his connection with Barley. But it's just not enough to be like, mm, well, I had him growing up. I, I, I appreciate that he said as much to Barley. And, and the reasoning why he's like, I'm going to let you have this because I grew up with you as my father figure. You grew up without one. And that's great. But we're just missing such a payoff in, in Ian being able to speak a word to him. Because I think that they were trying too hard to go for the gut punch. I think they were trying Fair. to do, I think they were trying to do what Wally did so well. I think they were trying to do what Up did so well. I think they were trying to do what was done so well at times in Inside Out. I think particularly to a, when they say goodbye to uh to Bing Bong. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Like this does not hold up to any of that. I think the cassette tape scene does. Yes. This doesn't. I would agree. But I think that the most like the most memorable scene in the movie the thing that you're supposed to be building up towards I with the exception of up pun intended because the gut punch is in the first 2 minutes of the movie but they use that as a springboard to to do the rest of the film I feel like if this is supposed to be the payoff and this is supposed to be the memorable thing it shouldn't have been something that happened in the middle of the movie it should have been here and it wasn't I got it I think I have your better ending okay Barley's question for the dad was supposed to be, what's your wizard name? So maybe they set up that Barley can't make it to the end and have the moment. But as the sun is fading, Ian gets one single second. And instead of making it about him, he asked what your wizard name was so that Barley got his answer and used his moment. That's still using your moment for Barley in a different way. But then you just have that. You, you spoke to him. Right. And everything that you tried to do and everything that you did, because that's the other thing. It's not just about the father. It's about that you learned magic and, and you had to believe Barley and trust Barley and believe in yourself. So it's the payoff for his own journey, too. Do you have anything else here before we start talking about characters? No, not on story. All right, let's let's go to characters here. Ian is played by Tom Holland. I like Tom Holland more than I like Ian. Um, it's nice that Ian has his 180 moment um, where he is now confident and he has mended his relationship with his brother and with Bronco. But I feel like the things that he does to Barley throughout the movie are at times so hurtful that I'm not sure that he's redeemed. No, and even in the beginning of the movie, he's just annoying. I'm I get that he's a shy kid and he's just trying to keep the peace, but like stand up for yourself, man. Like the scene where where the guy's got his feet on Ian's chair. Yeah. That's a little ridiculous that you back down to something like that. I can deal with it at the beginning of the movie because you are building him up as sort of being a wimp, but it was too much. That's my point. At times, it was just too much. 
Chris Pratt is the best part of this movie. A thousand percent. Barley is so endearing. He is so likable. And what's incredible about him is no matter how many people knock him down, no matter how many people punch him, he keeps fighting back. And he's always just Barley. He never, he never gives up on being Barley. And I think that Chris Pratt brings so much life to the character. This is a situation where I like Tom Holland more than Ian. But I think Chris Pratt is Barley. The same way he's Star-Lord, he's Barley. Yeah, it's amazing because those two characters are so different. But I feel like if you were going to bring Barley to life, yeah, it would absolutely be Chris Pratt. Um, No, I love what he does with the voice. He plays it pretty straight the entire time until he talks about your heart's fire or when he's talking about Guinevere. I, I think the voice acting is spectacular. Um, but what's more to me is that normally a character like this would annoy me, that you're just charging through without thinking about any of the consequences. But Barley has so many redeeming and endearing qualities. I don't get that at all. Laurel, great character. I love her in this film. I love that she is the mighty warrior. And I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is so good because I didn't watch Veep. I know a lot of people did. So to me, she's always Elaine. Right. And I love how she goes from being Elaine to being mom jeans. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. (laughs) And you know exactly what I mean when I say that. I thought she was great. No, that's another thing. The voice acting is spectacular, but the character, for somebody who gets such little screen time, the character is incredible. Like, you talked about that brilliant moment before where she says she's going to go to battle with Barley over the toys. But my other favorite Laurel moment is when they're in the pawn shop trying to get the sword back. And uh, the the creature behind the desk, who uh, I didn't realize this, was voiced by uh, Tracy Ullman. Because uh, it sounds like Roz to me. Um She's going to charge them $10, but then after the manticore talks about what the sword means, she's like, no, it's $10,000. And, and Laurel just totally goes along with shoplifting this thing. And she's like, here's a little money for your troubles. Love your store. But it's such a turning point for her because she doesn't even try to protest what's happening. She's just like, nah, I got to go get my boys and and I'm going to step on you and do whatever whatever I have to do. The manticore. Octavia Spencer. I I love the Manticore. I know you love the Manticore. You hit on it, you hit on it earlier. The relationship that the Manticore has yeah. with Laurel is I think what really nails home that she is such a likable character. It's the biggest arc and the biggest change probably aside from well no cuz it's Ian's got like teen angst. Really. But so I I think it is fair to say that the Manticore has the biggest arc or reverse arc because she reverts back to what she used to be. Yeah. But um, and see, that's where that ending scene that you don't love pays off because she's going out for drinks with Laurel. Mm -hmm. I like that they left it there. Mel Rodriguez plays Colt Bronco. While I have issue with where I think they went with Bronco. I thought Mel Rodriguez played it well as the new boyfriend who's trying to be 
he's 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 dad jokes. We got mom jeans and dad jokes. <laughs> trying to be relatable, but also trying to flex his muscle. I like him. They could have done more with him. Agreed. Um. All right. So, final thoughts. Oh, actually, before we get to final thoughts, animation. Animation, and I want to pose a question. All right, let's talk about the animation, though. I because uh, I think I have I've been pretty clear on the fact that I think the world building was a letdown here. Set wise, yes, but character wise, I think it's absolutely incredible. And this is where I do feel bad for the people that didn't get a chance to see it on the big screen. Because to me, what I was just sitting there in awe of through most of the film uh, was was the skin tones and that hair. Not only is the hair so detailed piece by piece, but the coloring. It's got the dark base and then it fades into the blue and gets lighter. And uh, every time I'm just like staring at it in awe because it's so beautiful but then even when they get in the close-up shots they have like that pale blue skin they gave it so much texture and and when they do there's one shot in the very beginning I forget what scene it's in you just get like a close-up of Ian and they made his ear translucent like as if light is shining through and and every time I just sit there like am I drooling isn't it amazing looking back on it because uh, we are of a certain age where we remember seeing Toy Story in theaters, and that being Pixar's first feature-length film, and being blown away by how the characters look. And Toy Story holds up. It is a timeless classic. But not the fourth you, one. Not the fourth one. There is no fourth one. But if you look at the animation from the first Toy Story on the humans, not on the toys. Because the toys, you can get away with making them look flat and making them look like plastic because they're toys. But if you take Andy, right, and you put him against Ian, isn't it incredible? And now it's 25 years later as of the time and release of Onward, where they have gone in 25 years. Right, and forget that Ian is not even a human. Uh, he looks more human-like than Andy does. Mm-hmm. Just the way that they get like the, the freckles and the pink cheeks, it's just absolutely incredible. And I love, we didn't, we didn't mention this character yet, their dog. Uh, I love the way, I mean, I say dog, it, it's, it's a dragon, dragon. but it's, it's their pet. Um, I love the way he's animated. I love that he takes on the animation of a dog. It's great. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question before we go into the final synopsis here. You got two brothers on a quest, fighting each other. I think I see where this is going. Is this Frozen for boys? That's what I thought you were going to say. Um, I never thought that until our most recent viewing when I was really paying attention to the relationship more than I ever had because I think the first couple of times I watched it this is probably our third and fourth time seeing it we saw it well actually no it was I can definitely count it once at the movies once we did our live watch party uh which if you want to go back that's still on Facebook so you can cue us up to talk along with the uh with the film if you haven't had enough of us uh and then twice this week um I never thought that because I was always just paying so much attention to the animation and 
more of the more of the Pixar world, I guess, uh, and the characters individually. But it wasn't until now that I started to put this together. Uh, do I think that this was made with the intention to be frozen for boys? Uh, from the marketing department standpoint, sure. But because Dan Scanlon wrote this story about something that was very personal to him, I don't think that that was the intent. So creative, no. Business end, yeah. I, I can see why this got greenlit. I'll put it to you that way. Absolutely. So, final thoughts. I'll go first. You said this was the fourth time we've watched the movie. Four was enough. Ooh. I don't think this movie has a ton of rewatchability. I think it's a good movie. Here's the thing. It's not bad. I think the movie's good. I think it has a nice story, but I've seen it. Now, Up, that is not a movie that I'm going to watch yearly. I might not even watch it bi-yearly because it is such a crusher in the first five minutes. But the movie is so incredible that eventually I can go back and revisit it and appreciate it for how good it is. I feel like this movie is good enough to have seen, and it's good enough to have seen. So I don't think, of all of the Pixar movies, I don't think it has as much rewatchability as a lot of their other films. I'll just put it that way. Interesting. I really didn't see that coming. I disagree because I get more and more out of it every single time that I watch it. Um, I like it more every single time, and that's not to say that I didn't like it the first time, but... I was very hung up on the ending the first time that we watched it. And the more viewings that I've had, the less that bothers me. And the more and more I like what we did get. In st- and I'm able to separate what I thought it was going to be from from what it is. Um, I almost said I like the characters more, but that's not the case because I do dislike Ian more every time. Uh, but yeah, Barley... I've always loved Barley and and he's my favorite thing about this movie and that's the rewatchability factor for me is is probably Barley. Um is this an iconic Pixar film? No. It's not up there with Toy Story. It's not up there with Cars. It's not up there with Ratatouille. I wouldn't even put it up there with Soul, a film we just talked about. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Right? Of the two of them, Soul is definitely the standout from last year. Right. But as you just said, it's not necessarily the standout for you it doesn't it's it's not on par with those other classics but we did differ on this one and it was sort of a surprise because more times than not I'm the one that's a little bit more forgiving when it comes to these movies and you're a little bit more critical so here we have a bit of a role reversal when it comes to our feelings of onward that was a very nice way of saying that thank you you're welcome and we want to know what you have to say you can let us know on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio you can also email us monoreal radio at gmail.com news of the week is coming up but first a quick break hey guys my name is mike i listen to jackie and sean's podcast every week on my commute into work so i reached out to jackie and she helped me put together the perfect getaway I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. 
She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. Mike liked his Mickey bars so much that he booked another cruise with me. And you can too. You can either reach out through any of our social media channels at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week, there's some speculation. And we don't usually report on speculation, but I think this is noteworthy enough. There is There are wheels in motion that Disney is going to start moving some of their offices from their headquarters in California to Florida, as they should. We don't know what they are. We don't we know, don't know what departments. <laughs> but let me tell you something. If they start animating in Orlando again, I'm probably going to drop dead. <laughs> they will have really... <laughs> while they love uh, Galaxy's Edge... Now they're going to be up against it. <laughs> Could you imagine a rebranded fifth gate of an actual working studio Stop again? Stop it, my heart. Stop. Stop. Oh. I mean, they got a lot of land. Who knows? Who knows? But supposedly they are moving some of their offices, at least, to Orlando, as they should. Did I mention they should? Because what I really meant was they should. I want a job. <laughs> um... Let's talk about something that is already in the can and ready to go, and that's WandaVision. That is dropping this Friday. We're not getting one, but we're getting two episodes. Yes, and they have pretty much confirmed that we are getting this Mandalorian style. It'll be one at a time, except for premiere week. And that's how it should be. I like that it's weekly. I don't like that it's just binge on it and you're done. Yeah, we grew up on TGIF, so make the kids wait for something. I know. Teach them patience. I love it. I love it. And they're smart because they know if they stagger it that way. How many people cancel Netflix because, well, I saw Stranger Things. All right. I'll cancel it. We were gonna. We were gonna. We have Disney Plus. We spend about four to six hours a week watching Disney movies for the show. Except for Schitt's Creek. Netflix is almost obsolete in this house. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I've toyed with the idea of just buying Schitt's Creek, Dexter, and Breaking Bad on Blu-ray and just dumping Netflix because their prices keep going up. Netflix now, I got the notification. You know, when I first started with Netflix, I think it was like $8.99 a month. It's up to like 14 bucks a month now. We may have to revisit what we're doing here. Yeah, we'll talk offline. <laughs> But we are interested in knowing how excited you guys are for WandaVision. Are you going to watch now? Because this is the other question. Are you going to watch now? Because I know a lot of people that will not watch The Mandalorian until they can binge it. And I think that, in a way, Netflix has kind of ruined television in that aspect. Um, But I'm interested to know, are you going to watch it now or are you going to wait? Let us know. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on the show. That's our social media. That's our email. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. We will be back next week to discuss another film that went straight to Disney Plus in 2020. 
but did they go about it the right way or should they have not charged you $30 a month for it? We will debate, although it's not much of a debate. They shouldn't have charged you. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.